Okay, Henry, um, uh, thanks for coming on again. I really appreciate it. Um, before we start the podcast, uh, we dedicate the podcast to something or to someone. So we have the guests have the honor wherever you like. What would you like to dedicate the episode to? I want to dedicate this to Kabekanong Incorporated. It's a nonprofit uh, that helps kids, families in crisis um, with various problem, problems that uh, uh, sometimes fall through the cracks of social services and all the other departments that help out people. Um, Kabekanong is an Indian word, Ojibwe word that means war road. Oh, so okay. all right, it's all right. uh, o, it's Kabekanong, K A H dash B A Y dash K A H dash N O N G, and um, dedicated to that, uh, it's it's my foundation or nonprofit. It's a five hundred one c three started back in nineteen ninety five. Nice. And we've tried to, uh, over the years, help um, you know, Indian kids and families in education, recreation, and sports by helping with the different fees and transportation to and from practice or other events and uh, buying some ice, uh, ice, ice or hockey equipment and... Uh, you know, doing some crisis situations, mentoring, and, uh, you know, helping uh, in any way that might be, uh, benef- uh, you know, benefit to right. the families that uh, are short of money, you know, with light bills, electric bills, or something like that on occasion that we, they can count on us to uh, step forward and help out. And if we can't personally help at times, uh, you know, we'll, we'll find the help through uh, other means. And we'll definitely put the link up to that if it has somewhere where people can find it also. Yeah, you yeah. can go to henryboucher.com. There, it's, we'll, uh, we'll put that up there. It's all on there. There's a donate button uh, for various projects that we umbrella, you know, including uh, the Native American Olympians at uh, 21 Part Series that I'm working on uh, right. currently with Boucher Films. Okay. Okay, we are back, and we have Mr. Boucher here, Mr. Henry Boucher. I want to say thank you for coming on. You're such a busy guy. You're doing all these things and um, coming down here. Um, you know, as a retired professional hockey player, I would like to ask you, how's your golf game? It used to be great at one time. Um, you know, as you get older, I'm 67 years old right, right. now. And by the way, it's a pleasure being here Um uh, I love uh, South St. Paul, and oh, you know you. the people around here are just uh, just great. In yeah. fact, I did a uh, I did a piece uh, uh, for Minnesota Hockey Magazine on the Palatichek family. Did you really? My family, really? On your family uh, last year, and you can go on their site, uh, okay. their website, and actually 
read the story. It's a couple of pages, uh, but it yes. talks about the Palatichek's of South St. Paul, and and South St. Paul used to be in the state tournament year after year after year. Right, right, yeah. And I think there's 15 different Palatichek's from different families that played in the state tournament. And, we, and uh, it was, yeah. uh, you know, it was a pleasure to do because, you know, coming from War Road, uh, you know, at the top of the state up there, uh, you know, six miles from the Canadian border. Right. That, you don't the, get down here and you don't, if you don't come to the state tournament, you really don't know or are educated about the teams that, uh, you know, made history, like Johnson, right. uh, South St. Paul, you know, in this area. And they had some fine teams. Harding was in there a couple of times. But right. for the most part, I think South St. Paul is is right up there, one, two, or three, and state tournament appearances did you um because i'm writing my my comic book and it takes place in 1968 during the last year at the auditorium did you ever get to play in the saint paul auditorium no i came down in 1969 and we played at the met center all right so you you never got the opportunity to play at the old smoky auditorium no (laughs) and when you say that it's pretty funny because when i was growing up you know we would scrape ice and world between periods because we never had zamboni and when the World Lakers were playing some Canadian team, when I was, you know, anywhere from 9, 10, 11, 12, we would uh, scrape off the rink, a bunch of us, because we could get into the game free and then get a free pop and popcorn sure, for yeah. doing that. But I remember them playing all of the marching music, you know, all of the military marching music over. I remember going up in the gondola and they had an actual turntable really? album, a 78, where they would start it. Yeah. And then everybody would head to the warming room. Oh, that's all, that was the cue. And, dur- yeah. and then during the, and then during the, you know, the, while we were scraping the ice, yeah. all this music would be on. It was piped into the warming room where they had a concession. But that place was filled with cigar smoke and people smoking <laughs> cigarettes and stuff. <laughs> was primarily most of your high school hockey games outside? No, actually, uh, mo- all of them were inside. We okay. b- built a rink up there in 1949. All right, all right. And uh, it was indoor, and but it was natural ice, so you would flood it, you yeah. know, in when it got cold enough in late November. And sometimes we had to, you know, just skate down on the river, have practice down on the river, and uh, really. And then once they had the ice in and and the lines painted that we could go in there and play, um, you know, we like I said, we didn't have a Zamboni. So they would pull barrels around um, early in the morning or late at night or both and prepare the ice for the day. So if there was a school day on a Friday, uh, if we didn't have a game, we would skate at 3.30, Right, just, you know, yeah. the, the JV would skate after us, and then there might have been a Laker game, you know, at 8 o'clock. So every time somebody skated on it, it would have to be uh, scraped off and then shoveled over the boards. And, you know, you never really had good clean ice, except for maybe the playoffs or something. I, I remember you guys kind of had a small budget for your hockey teams, right? You kind of had a uniforms kind of scarce and equipment were scarce. Well, you know, it was all funded through the school, so they, you know, you have your athletic budget, but, um, you know, we, um, 
Yeah, I've always played on hand-me-down equipment and skates, you know, even when I was little. <laughs> um, I remember one year I was, wasn't going to play, and I just uh, made up my mind that I, we, didn't, we couldn't afford skates, and my blade had broken, and we had a game that Saturday morning, and I think I was a goalie. Well, you wore regular skates. You know, you would wear shin pads, but then you'd put the pads right over the shin pads. Okay, all right. You all know, right. Yeah. and um, right. so I actually, I played uh, I played defense as a peewee, and then if we had a peewee game before the Bantam game, after the peewee game, I'd run in, and I would get the goalie equipment on and play goalie for the Bantams. I was going to ask you, because somebody told me you, used, you did a little bit of goalie. I was kind of yeah. surprised you actually did it. I did it until I was, uh, you know, eight, as an eighth grader, after we won the state Bantam championship, in fact, here in South St. Paul at Wakota. Down the, what's now called Dougwood Doug Arena, but yeah, right. down in Wakota. Yeah. 1964. And um, and that, uh, I, had, I had a couple of years of uh, eligibility left because of my birthday. But I, I played high school hockey the next year as an eighth grader. Yeah. Played mostly JV, but I got my shifts and I dressed for the varsity. And and uh, the following year, they needed a goalie, and I agreed to play goalie. <laughs> and uh, but anyway, uh, did you the, did you like playing goalie? I, think. I didn't mind it, you okay. know. And we when we played road hockey and stuff, or shinny down on the river stuff, I I was in goal sometimes. We took okay. turns, but. It was all right. You know, we'd watch Hockey Night in Canada and try to emulate those players. Right. <laughs> well, I read your book that you actually said that you actually liked football better than hockey growing up. You actually liked football more. I and, did. I, I was running back, and, and I really – and I played both sides. I was a safety. Well, yeah, back in those days you had to, right? Right, I mean, that was because this, of the numbers. Yeah. And uh, so I really enjoyed it, and I had scholarships to play football and, at, even at Notre Dame, and uh, I uh, and at the University of Minnesota, and I had scholarships at the University of Minnesota, baseball, football, and hockey. And I chose to go to Canada and play junior hockey after high school. <laughs> and I think it was more, uh, you know, more people that wanted me to excel at hockey so they kind of push me that way yeah to the college rather yeah. rather than you know play football okay but i love football it was uh, it was good i loved um you know the coverage intercepting passes i love running the ball and um just the whole concept of the game but you know it was a short season up in yeah. up in northern minnesota <laughs> I mean, remember playing in snowstorms up there and wind blowing, and but um, yeah, it was a it was a great game, and and uh, but it, you know I, I excelled in in hockey as well, and I think I was more apt well, to being pushed. That when you way. guys played football, did you do any Canadians teams because they played Canadian football, or you had schools from Canada? No, playing? it was we were under the Minnesota State High School League, so okay. we couldn't. You know, we we had our eight or. I think it was eight games, sure. you know, during the season, and and during that time, a lot of these smaller towns had football teams where they are consolidating up there now. Right, they're doing, th you know, two and three different schools together, and 
calling it Kitson County North and Kitson County Central, and then you've got other ones that consolidate with uh, with uh, you know local or nearby communities. So um, you know it's different now, um, and then they have so many different classes of, right, yeah, of football that uh, you know Ward ends up you know driving down south of Fargo an hour, which is about four and a half five hours on yeah. a Friday to play a game. Yeah, you get on the bus, play your game, and it's about a total about, a, it takes about eight hours of your day to play just a varsity game because you have to find somebody of your caliber, somebody right. of your Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So then they, you know, then the trip home. So that's, you know, that's 10 hours plus a couple hour game. So you get a 12, 14 hour day. And... Yeah. So um, if I'm going to get to the movies and stuff, but... Um, if everybody did, wasn't really familiar with you, you did play, what, like six years in the NHL? Yes. For four teams, right? Right. For four different teams. Okay. And that was just, what, like contracts and stuff like that, that you kind of moved around and trades and stuff, this part of the natural and everything, right? Well, actually, I, again, I played with the, right out of high school, I went to Winnipeg, played in Western Canada. Okay. I was picked up by the U.S. team. They were... Uh, putting the 1972 Olympic team together. Oh, yes. Yeah, yep. And um, Murray Williamson and Hal Trumbull basically got the contract from the Olympic Committee or USA Hockey to run a program to be competitive in the 72 Olympics. So the first thing they had to do was was, uh, USA Hockey was placed in the B bracket in 1970. So... They had to put a team together, and I was scouted during the first part of the season up in Canada by Murray Williamson. Okay. And um, they put together probably 40, 45 players to try out for that team during Christmas break. So it was up there, too? You didn't... No, I had to come down to Minneapolis. You got to come down there, okay. Yeah. So during our Christmas break, I drove down to Warroad from Winnipeg, which is two and a half hours, and then... (laughs) Stay overnight, and I played uh, a game with the World Lakers that night and then slept and then drove down the next day. And then we had practice uh, with the tryouts with the U.S. team, the 1970 team, that actually got put in the B bracket and had to win the tournament World Championships B bracket qualifying bracket in Bucharest, Romania. So they're putting a 25-man team together to go over and win that tournament. And if the U.S. won that tournament, then then they would qualify for the 71 World Championships and the 72 Olympics. So so it was was quite an experience for an 18-year-old to come down here and skate with the likes of Marv Jordy, and (laughs) he tried out. And, of course, Herbie Brooks was on that team, George Connick. A lot of players from... Uh, Minnesota, um, Jim McElmory, uh Carl Wetzel was the goalie. Um, we had Dick Tomazzoni f- that played at uh, Notre Dame. He's from Hibbing. We had uh, Don Ross from Roseau and I think Larry Ross. Um, uh, Brian Grand from Roseau played at Bemidji. So we had a you know a, a mix. We had some players from out west or out east, that uh, Boston area that that made okay. the team, and 
we went over to Switzerland and played some uh, exhibition games and then went over to Romania and played against uh, Romania, uh, Italy, uh, East Germany, Japan, Switzerland, um, yeah. you know, Hungary, um, you know, so it was, uh, it wasn't the Russians and the Czechs and the Swedes. It right, was, it was a you small know, little pack. Yeah. Right, yeah. So anyway, we ended up winning all the games and won that tournament. So, And I was uh, very proud, you know, being from Warroad because the Lakers, uh, when I was growing up, and that was a senior team, that eventually won three uh, Allen Cups up at Warroad. And that Allen Cup is the major Canadian championship for Canada senior hockey. Right. And they played in, in the Manitoba League and then won the West and then ended up uh, playing against uh, uh, all of Canada and winning in that three years in a row. And years ago, they had uh, that the winners of the Allen Cup yeah. represent Canada in the in the na, as their national team for the World Championships, right? For the World Championships and okay. the Olympics. So, you know, they didn't do it then, but twenty years before that, they did that. Okay. Uh, it would have been pretty amazing to see a Waro team in there representing Canada. Did, and, uh, for tryouts, did you guys just do like a regular scrimmage? or you just... Well, we we had a couple of games and what have you, and okay. then we all went back home, and then they notified us by a phone call a couple of weeks later. So I was elated. You know, he had to work out a deal with Ben Haskins, who owned the team, that I could take a three-week vacation. Three-week vacation, basically, okay. and play with the U.S. team. And and I did that, and and great experience for me because it really, you know, stepping towards the National Hockey League and playing um, in Western Canada, but, you know, was great. But playing against international competition was outstanding because it's quicker. You play in bigger rinks. Yeah. Was that like your first time playing on an Olympic-sized rink? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, pretty amazing. Um, So that gave me the experience. And then I went back to Winnipeg and uh, finished out the season uh, in the playoffs and what have you. I went back to Warroad that summer, and I was working at Marvin Windows up there, and I got a letter in the mail from Uncle Sam that said I was drafted in the Army. So then I um, called my coach up. He just said, don't worry about it. We have three or four players that are in the same situation. We're going to call a Pentagon, tell them the situation, and work out a deal with them. So this was like in July, Yes. And he called me back, says, yeah, we got it worked out. And it looks like you're going to be drafted in December or January. So what we want to do then is have you volunteer draft in August. I mean, like right. in two weeks. <laughs> so I came down here to Minneapolis, stayed with my brother, and I volunteered draft. Went down to Fort Knox, Kentucky, went through basic training, and then I was assigned by the Army to the Metropolitan Sports Center. And we played a 50-game schedule and played in the World Championships in 1971 in Bern in Geneva, Switzerland, against the Russians, the Czechs, the Swedes, the Finns, and West Germany. Okay. So, and that was a great experience uh, for me. I don't think I would have 
you know, I, I may have ended up in the in the minors, you know, when I turned pro after the Olympics. But I, we did the same thing during the Olympic year. I went back in the service uh, to uh, ended up in Georgia and then ended up in, in uh, Germany for a couple of months before training camp started. For the Olympic team, we played a 50-game schedule, all of the United States and Canada. Did you do guys play pro teams too? We played, uh, yeah, the Western League teams out of okay. Salt Lake, uh, the Central League teams. We played uh, Fort Worth. Uh, we played Omaha, Oklahoma City. Okay. Um, we played college teams. We played everywhere because, uh, you know, although we're based out of Minneapolis, we didn't draw a lot of people with the North Stars here. Yeah. Um, so we were on the road a lot, and we played in every nook and cranny you can think of. You know, to raise money. We didn't have any corporate sponsorship in those days. So, so you had to take gates we had sale. we had you know, we had to split the gates where they were you know, wherever we went, we had expenses, you know, planes and rooms and meals and So it's almost like uh bus get on the bus kinda of like in the movie Slapshot and get on the bus and just start driving and Right. Yeah. Playing. Yeah. We had a regular schedule, but you know, yeah. we'd go play Harvard, we'd play Princeton. Okay, you also did college teams too. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, and then we played University of Minnesota, University of Minnesota Duluth, Duluth uh, North Dakota. We played up in Alberta. Yeah. Played University of Alberta, University of Calgary. Um, we were in Salt Lake. We were, had a big tournament against the Russians and the Czechs down at the Broadmoor Hotel in Colorado Springs. All right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were all over the place, and and um, you know it was a great experience. But uh, you know, like I, I was saying, is that uh, you know it, instead of me going to the minors when I got done with the Olympics or yeah. coming out of juniors to play for a year or two, I think this experience really did me a lot of good, and it uh, you know it kind of opened my eyes to what you need to do up on the ice and what you need to take care of on the ice and well it's a, yeah because it made me a better player you gotta you gotta in contact a lot of different styles a lot of different areas and i'm sure you probably play different positions and stuff right well the thing about it is international hockey is so much quicker right yeah. uh because you don't have the daily grind of the national hockey league you play one night in detroit you hop on a charter and then you're in you're in Montreal yeah. the next night you know then you uh, you might go to Boston you're there you get practice day and then you play a game in Boston and then then you're in New York the next night and you know so you can't you know compared to that and compared to the the Olympic style or the world championships you kind of want to peak at that time okay Okay. So you have more, I think, enthusiasm and more of a will to win, um, you know, in those type of situations rather yeah. than the daily grind, you know, of, of, you know, playing every other night or every night, you know, for months. Do you, you, know, so. do you have any of your trading cards still? There's quite a few out there. I All sign right. them. I get a lot of fan mail yet. Uh, with you know, with the uh, the internet and you know, so it was you know it they're they're out there and um, I I have I have some yeah. Um, so after after hockey was all done, what were you thinking about doing? And when you no longer could say, okay, I can't do that, do, can't do hockey anymore. What was it, where did you 
what was your next pursuit? Well, my situation was unique because when right. I was traded from Detroit, I played two and a half years over there, got traded by by uh, Alex Del Vecchio, who was the general manager of Detroit at the time, traded me to Minnesota for Danny, Danny Grant. And I was, I was 23 years old, uh, and I had already played you know, three years in the league, two and a half years in the league. And they were looking at a five-year contract with, with Minnesota and offered me the captaincy and a five-year deal. Okay. And we were negotiating that, um, and I started playing, playing out my option year with, with Minnesota. Then in January uh, of that year, Dave Forbes and I got into an altercation. I got the best of them in a fight. We went to the penalty box for a two and a five minute penalty and we're in there probably 15 minutes. And then when we stepped back out on the ice, I looked at him to see if he was gonna do anything and he didn't appear that he was going to. So I turned my head over toward the bench to see whether I should stay in the ice or not. And then Murray Oliver, who was on my team said, look out. And as I turned around, Forbes had come up behind me, carrying uh, his stick with a butt of stick sticking out of his glove, and his blade was dragging on the ice, and he threw a punch with the stick in his hand, and as I turned around, it caught me above the eye, caught me for 30 stitches, it blew my cheekbone out, and damaged the muscles around the eye. And I didn't know that at the time, uh, you just, uh, I went down and, you know, self-preservation mode and, you know, kind of covered up because I knew I was hurt. I I didn't get, you know, I remember vaguely, but I remember the blood squirting out about six, seven feet in front of me. So I just went down and covered up and then he jumped on my back and started punching me in the back of the head. And nobody really, knew, it was never on any film, it was on, Right. It was on uh, uh, Midwest Sports Channel back here in the Midwest. It was on TV back in Boston. Yeah, there was like no no ESPN where it's like... Right. <clears throat> no, so there was. Uh, everybody went to commercial break, and then this happened. So nobody actually saw what, what happened. And there are no pictures. There are 15,000, 16,000 people in the fans. There are people behind the penalty boxes. Um and you know when you see an accident a car accident mm -hmm. you know everybody's going to have a different view and uh, um it was outrageous uh the next they realized what had happened dave forbes got a game misconduct and then he got uh, uh suspended for 10 games without pay that was the you know for intentionally injuring somebody in a in a game and when that, that came out, um, Gary Flackney, who was Hennepin County attorney, said, this is so ridiculous. If I had somebody hit me or hit somebody else with a stick right. on the street, that would be aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. Right, if they did it in the parking lot, right. Yeah. Would, yeah. And he would, he would get a fine, plus he would get a, you know, uh, some jail time, probably a year. So how can the National Hockey League justify this when there's kids watching a game back in Boston 
all over the Midwest, and there's 15,000, 16,000 people at the game. So you, you mean to tell me these kids are going to think it's okay to go out there and use their stick as a weapon and not take the responsibility for what they did? And that's basically his philosophy, and, and it's exactly what the National Hockey League did, basically. Uh, just sweep it under the rug. So it never got to court? It went to court. Okay. It good. went to court through Gary Flackney, the Hennepin County attorney, and it resulted in a hung jury. There were 12 jurors. Okay. Ten wanted conviction, one abstained, and one voted no. For, you know, and that resulted in a hung jury. So then they didn't want to retry it because, it, you know, it was, a, it was a big case. If they would have had conviction, it would have set a precedent in the National Hockey League and every other sport. So um, that was the extent of that. But Flackney, the Hennepin County attorney, thought that he uh, got his word across, um, you know, in a big way. And... Uh, it certainly helped the kids because after that incident, all of the kids started wearing the stop on the back of their jerseys. They all had to wear masks. That was the visors. start of it, wasn't it? That was the start of it. Because right. you guys weren't wearing, I mean, even in high we, school. We right? didn't wear, yeah, we wore, we wore helmets in high school and uh, we wore helmets in international play in the National Hockey League. We did, I didn't wear anything. I, you know, I had a, had a headband on, pulling the hair out of my eyes and sweat out of my eyes as well. So, um, and it's crazy, you know, I mean, to, you know, to, you know, with the curved sticks and, uh, and, uh, you know, the, the way they shoot the puck these days, it's, you know, if you don't have a mask and a visor on, it's, it's really something. It's very dangerous. Right, yeah. And, I, you know, and it's, they don't hit as much. I think the game is opened up a lot i like the passing and skating and that's the way the europeans played for years and years and they didn't have the rough stuff the broad steep bullies the fighting you know the intimidation you know when i played you know when i played when there was 14 teams in the league now there's 31 32 with uh with las vegas so the game has changed a lot, and and uh, because of my incident, it it has uh, curtailed some of the violence. You don't see that many fights anymore. You don't see players using their sticks as much, um, and uh, it's a better game because of it. Right. I don't. I don't watch professional hockey very much, but when I do, I I'm like, well, that was actually a pretty smooth game. There wasn't really much. I mean, there's always kind of with a the goalie freezes. There's always kind of the pushing and shoving. Yeah, yeah. a little bookering, but never really an outright. I don't see that anymore. And as, if it does happen, it's a big. I mean, it's almost like people are upset that it actually does happen now. But mm-hmm. but yeah, even like in the '90s, it was still kind of a little bit prominent. But it's definitely dialed down a lot since then. Yeah. Did you think you could play in this era? Oh, I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, because the, I mean, uh, their skates are like like two pounds now. Their sticks are just like everything is so much lighter. Right. Um, so anyway, after that injury, I um, renegotiated or tried to pick up the negotiations. I and my lawyer in Detroit, and 
You know, basically, he was asleep at the wheel during that time, and uh, he was having some marriage problems or whatever, and and um, we negotiated with Ren Blair, not Ren Blair, but uh, um, the general manager. Um, oh, um. I can't even think of his name right offhand, though. Um, but anyway, we couldn't come to terms. Uh, you know, we were talking a five-year deal at one point with an option year, the longevity, the seriousness of my injury yeah. uh, resulted in double vision because it damaged the muscles around the eye. It uh, caused deperception problems, and I lost my bargaining power. Uh, one good thing is that I was the number one draft choice in the World Hockey Association. So I was able to uh, play out my contract that year, and then I signed with the Minnesota Fighting Saints. And that was a great team over there. Uh, I loved that team. I played online with Dave Keon. That was at the Civic Center. Civic right? Center. Right. Dave right. Keon and uh, Pye McKenzie, and we had Shaky Walton. We had some great players there, Mike Antonovich and – Jack Carlson and Brackenbury and John, uh, 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 some great goalie goaltenders and and uh, you know Wayne Conley was there. I, I mean, it was a formidable team, and I think we could have beat the North Stars. And there's no question about yeah, that. Yeah, there's some people that said it was like yeah, the mid, yeah. But they were always in financial trouble, so they folded about halfway through the season. And Minnesota had traded my rights away to the Kansas City Scouts. Okay. And uh, so when I, I jumped back to the National Hockey League for security and I signed a three-year deal with them and uh, played out the, the last half of the 75-76 season. Okay. They were only there two years. They weren't drawing well. Vickers, it was like an expansion team, right? Right, yeah, with yeah. with the Washington Capitals. Yeah. Same year. And then uh, Vickers Oil bought them out and moved them to Denver, and they became the Colorado Rockies. And now they're the New Jersey Devils. Devils. So oh. uh, I went out there. Um, Johnny Wilson, my old coach from Detroit, was coaching out there then. And um, he just said, Henry, they're just uh, – they're telling me not to play you. You you practice, uh, but if I if you know if we have enough players, they they're saying not to play you. And basically, what they were doing, they heard about the the lawsuit, right? Uh, because I lost ten years or so of playing, and the in the National Hockey League and the Players Association was run by Alan Eagleson at the time, and he was all pro ownership sure. you know with the teams and it wouldn't really help the players uh, they wouldn't even he wouldn't even return our calls when we asked for help and uh, so we ended up filing a lawsuit against the Boston Bruins Dave Forbes and um, and the National Hockey League for neglect uh, um, you know let something like that happen during a game and uh it took us five years, and we finally settled it in 1980 after I was all done. Okay. Um, but they, the league knew about, you know, that the lawsuit was coming, 
told the coach not to play me. So I, I went to practice every day. Played in nine games, I think, that year. And um, and they just they pushed me through waivers and yeah. bought me out of my contract. And at the age of 25, I was all done. So, you know, then you go through some... Um, I right. could have went to Europe and played, you know, and I wish I would have. But listening to the lawyers, yeah, um, oh, geez, you better not. I wouldn't play, you know, this would be better for our case. And, you know, but what's in your heart, you know? And uh, and I was bitter towards hockey at that time. And I, you don't realize when you're in that type of predicament or going through that process of, yeah. of self-pity and depression that, um, that you hate, you know, a sport like that because I was bitter because of what they did to me, yeah. because of the injury. You don't realize that, you know, it gave everything to you. You know, yeah. got a silver medal, played in the National Hockey League for five and a half, six years, um, played 250 games approximately. And um, it takes a long time to work through that. And through my spirituality as an Ojibwe, uh, you know, I somehow found that after years of kind of wandering around lost, being a lost soul, and, you know, uh, going, just living my life uh, uh, without much purpose. And once you do find that purpose, it, uh, and mine came through my daughter, who was 14 at the time, when I was visiting from Idaho back in Warroad, said, Dad, uh, Mom and I aren't getting along. She said it was okay to come and live with you. Okay. I don't want to move back to Idaho. I want you to move to Warroad. See, something like that in that case is uh, is dynamic, and it's, it's something that you search for and wondering, when is something like this going to happen? It gave me the responsibility of moving back to Warroad, raising my oldest child, getting back involved with hockey because I started coaching. It got me into the Indian Parent Committee at school. Uh, you know, it, it was a pull of something that you can't really explain. But it, it happened, and it happened at the right time. I ended up uh, moving home for 25, 26 years, raising my all my kids there, uh, working with the Indian Education Department, selling real estate up there, coaching um, all that time. And uh, it was, uh, you know, it was really a blessing of, uh, you know, in disguise, uh, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to be an Indian, you know, when I was younger because I'd watch these John Wayne movies. <laughs> right, yeah, you watch And this, you'd yeah. slump in your seat, yeah. and you would think, my God, you know, that's embarrassing seeing this old drunken Indian or, yeah. you know, and they portray him like a, just an idiot, yeah. you know. Okay. And uh, so I couldn't wait for those scenes to get over with. and And then I had an opportunity to learn my culture and traditions and I didn't I didn't want to learn them. It wasn't until after my eye injury that I, I was in search of my spirituality through the Indian way. I'd been 
baptized and confirmed through the Zion Lutheran Church. Saw that part of it, but I didn't know the Indian part of it because I didn't want to. And I, and I was, um, I was embarrassed by by that depiction. But it wasn't until Clyde Belcourt and Dennis Banks and and uh, the American Indian Movement took over Wounded Knee that it really brought the Indian people out of the woods. Uh, they put the Indian people back in in the in the spotlight to where we could um it was against the law to smoke our pipes and do our ceremonies in public and and our ceremonies are part of our religion our spirituality we all believe in the same great spirit as the catholics and the lutherans and and all the protestants and uh we practice it in a you know a different way i mean I mean, the, you look at the Catholics; they're, you know, they're they're smudging down with their, uh, uh, you know, their their ways, you know, during during Mass and all of that. And you know, we're smoking our pipes, we're praying, we're using the pipe to to thank yeah. the Great Spirit, the Four Directions, and Mother Earth. Yeah. And uh, it was uh, it was a blessing to actually. Uh, to learn all of that, you know, and I had an opportunity to move into the uh, Indian education system and become the first director at Warwood, and I really didn't know what the hell I was doing. I, <laughs> right. I was going, "What is this program?" You know, right. so you you <laughs> read, really you, right. you know, and then you you know you talk to other yeah. schools yeah. and and you learn. Because nobody else knew what was going on either. So, so this position, you go around to other schools and talk about Ojibwe? Well, I do now. Okay. Um, you know, and I talk about, you know, the powwow protocol. I talk about the uh, spirituality end of it. I talk about the migration of the Ojibwe into this area over a 500-year period. It's all in my book uh, that I wrote. And I wrote that book basically for... Uh, the 21-part series on Native American Olympians. And I had that um, thought back in 1992 when we were honored down in Albuquerque at the Gathering of the Nation's powwow. And the only, there were 10 of us, there was only four of us living. I was the youngest one in 1992. I was a silver medalist in 72. Uh, then you had Billy Mills, who was a gold medalist from the 64 games in Tokyo. And then the next one was uh, Buster Charles from 1948 games in London after the war. He won a gold medal <laughs> in basketball. And then there was 90-some-year-old Jesse Rennick, who ran in the 32 games in Berlin. Los Angeles. Oh, Los Angeles. Okay, yeah. I'm not blurring. Okay. 36 games were in uh, Berlin. Yeah, okay. Um, and then Grace Thorpe, Jim Thorpe's daughter, was there with all his medals. So we got together and we visited and told each other stories and, you know, spent a couple of good days together. And on the way home, I thought, my God, you know, somebody's got to do a documentary special on each one of these people. And I'm talking about starting from 
their spirituality because these people are from different tribes throughout the United States in different sports. Different tribes, different sports, different lo- yeah, different locations. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. you would yeah. you would have everything's kind of similar, but you would yet you would have they call it something else, you know, yeah. of course, but it's similar. So you would want to talk about their spirituality, talk about the location prior to the colonization of the United States, uh, where they were located and what happened during that colonization where the government moved them to. And, you know, and then get into their their tribe's history a little bit, get into their family, uh, who are the the grandparents, who are the great-grandparents, and kind of follow that lineage along and then talk about their parents and how they, where they lived and how they worked and how they got by, what kind of racism, discrimination and prejudice that they saw. Did they go to boarding schools? Right, the transfer, the boarding schools transformation where they like, yeah. you abandon your culture and yeah. Basically they yeah. came, if you had a five-year-old son or daughter, yeah. the government came and got your kids and you had no say they would pick them up, put them in a car, drive them to a school where they had their hair cut, they couldn't speak their language, they had to learn the English language, and they were sexually abused, they were physically abused, emotionally abused, (laughs) while they were were there. And they could come home from one month summer if they were good, if not, they had to stay there. And there were so many kids that died and so many graves around those schools. And it just broke the parents' heart, broke their spirit. That's having your kids that they, yeah. having having their kids taken away like that. So we want to tell those types of stories and how they overcame those and what other uh, situations that they might have. It, it, we don't want to do, we want to talk about the happy times as well. Yeah. You know, about the family unit, the siblings, the, you know, who they played with in the neighborhood or on the reservation, what kind of fun they had fishing and hunting and, and you know, how they got into public schools and how they actually got picked to be uh, maybe a track and field star uh, early on and who mentored them through their school and college and, and how they got into the Olympics and well, how, how would you go about doing the research? How would you find the resources? Just talk to them, or was there any Well, way? actually, I have, you know, we have files on each one of them. Okay. And, you know, with the technology we have ni- nowadays is, uh, you know, a great resource. And uh, through the Olympic Committee, they have bios. Uh, um, so I have, I just wrote a grant with the Hubbard Foundation and the Marvin Foundation to use... Okay. Uh, eight students out of Warroad High School. Okay. And I'm going to divide up 20 different um, Olympians to those four groups. And the, the newer ones will be easier to find. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, yeah. Because, of, you know, so there, much... there'll be video, there will be, you know, radio, there'll be newspaper clippings. The older ones that start like in 1904 are, will be a little harder. Right. But yeah. we, I want them to do the research. I want them to document. I want them to outline. I want them to interview family members. And then at the end of the day, I want them to write a story about that particular 
Olympian, Native American Olympian. So they'll work in teams. Sure, yeah. We have a year-long timeline. Once they compile all that and write the story, they will give it to Boucher Films writers. And then we will have that file to go on when we start writing the script. But they'll have all of the references in there, where they, who they talk to, what date and time, if they're still living, what their address is, how we can get a hold of them. Sure, we'll yeah. send the film crew right out there, uh, do, the, do the interviews. Uh, we'll put together a script. It's usually one page per minute. So you probably do a 45-page script or screenplay on them. And, uh, you know, we'll, uh, once that's done, you know, we have our production team that will go out and, and uh, do all the interviews and, you know, do the, do the bio. And uh, it'll be similar to, I guess, uh, ESPN's 3030 that you see. So are you, are you thinking for the documentary like a full-length feature or something short? One, one hour. One hour feature. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it could go It could go 90 minutes because you always want to shoot more than you're going to edit. <laughs> right, yeah. Right. So you have that file footage. Um, so it could go It could go full feature, yeah. you know, Um or a docu-drama, they call it, uh, at 90 minutes, or it could go half an hour, so depending any, on how, who we have for distribution at have, that point. Have you ever, have you guys actually started doing some shooting, or are you just still in the... We have some B-roll stuff okay. that, uh, you know, like Lake of the Woods, some water stuff up there. Um, we have, you know, and you have to buy everything. Yeah. from NBC or ABC, and it's expensive. Yeah. It's thousands of dollars per second, or 30 seconds. <laughs> Something it's, like that, right. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. So anyway, once we, we you know, once we do that, it, it won't take that long, but um, doing documentaries are, you know, just like building a house. You know, you have, you have to have a good foundation, and that's why I wanted to involve the warlord kids. I wanted them, whoever's interested in journalism, um, it would be a good start for them. We do have, we'll, we'll be working with the Board of Public Schools. Uh, oh, we that's will, nice. That's, we, yeah. 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 And they, they can get extra credit for this. We'll be working with their English department, uh, the World Heritage Center and Museum. Uh, so they, you know, they will have a lot of support staff there. We have different uh, people right there in Ward. I'll be the executive director down here and basically outline what the project will be in and assign those students, different uh, individuals to, to research. And uh, they will get paid an honorarium. They will get paid nice. some scholarship money. They will be paid, they won't have to spend a dime. Um, they get all our expenses paid and stuff. So it's uh, it'd be a great project for them, but it'd be a great pro a better project for us because then we don't have to spend somebody that makes two hundred thousand dollars a year or sit at a computer or yeah. or do it. We'll have it all done. You know, all we have to do is is look through that, see all the references, and uh, and know who to call, and then 
the worst thing that could possibly happen, I guess, is that we'll have enough for a really good book. <laughs> if it, everything else fails. <laughs> so um, with the movie and everything right now, is this on your pre? You haven't really got started. Sh- you're just shooting the exterior stuff. You haven't really fo- got the. You know, you have to work on everybody's yeah. schedule. Okay. And when yeah. you're doing, uh, well, we're, we're redoing the script right now on the movie. Okay. Uh, you know, we have it out to some studios um, that they're looking at it. So you really don't want to move too fast until all your options are complete. Right. We do believe that we have funding to do the movie ourselves as an independent. There are studios out there you would rather be with and go with um, that do this theater, big screen stuff all the time. Um, So we're kind of waiting on on a couple of different people right now. Okay. In the meantime, we're rewriting the script. Uh, You know, once you get the script written and then you, you know, you want some pretty, pretty, good A players or, you know, pass it around to some uh, um, actors that are up and coming. Sure, uh, sure. Indian um, lineage, you know, we would prefer. Uh, There are contracts, calendars, and then you got your production. We'll outsource all of that through, try to keep it local in Minnesota. You know, we can get film crews out of L.A. or New York anytime, but they're expensive. I think there's enough talent here in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area that we can that we can pull from. And, oh, I, uh, I've started this podcast in, like, uh, March, and it's amazing how much, because people, I review movies and stuff, but it's amazing the amount with just a, f- a little bit of money how they're able to kick out such quality movies out here. I think it's a nice... And, we, you know, uh, the legislature is going to have to do something to help out the film industry it, here. It used to be. In, like, the 90s, it was a very lucrative... Yeah, it, it helped out the industry. We had big-budget movies filmed in here, too, in mm-hmm. Minnesota. So, yes, I think the legislature definitely has to help out some way or the other. Yeah, I mean, we got to get back in the game. Yeah. You haven't seen a movie done here. It's Well, yeah, and if it does, it's it's not the... They're in, and, they're in and out. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. So anyway, you know, we, we, we all, I think we're all, as an industry, we're all working on that, you know, and supporting the people that are in the front lines on this one. So hopefully uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, I was going to ask you, because um, if, if anybody's interested in the book, I'll provide the link on the meta if they want to get your book. Um, if anybody um, is interested... How long did it take to do the whole book? Because you, I was, you know, I was in. Um, I had uh, left Warroad in two thousand seven. Okay, I, I was with the National Hockey League Diversity Task Force, where we started forty nine programs throughout the United States and Canada. Willie O'Ree, who was the first black player to play in National Hockey League, Hockey League back in nineteen. 58 with the Bruins. Um, a friend of mine was a lawyer up in, uh, is a lawyer up in Wasilla, which is 40 miles north of Anchorage. Okay. And I saw him at the state tournament. He goes, Henry, God, you, you know, why don't you come up and do a hockey school? And 
This was like in 2004. <laughs> okay. So, and I said, well, yeah. Uh, so later on that spring, I called him up and I said, you still want to do that hockey school? I said, let's run it through the, um, uh, you know, NHL USA Hockey Diversity Task Force. You would have to use or have probably 40% native kids up there. And all of the natives up in Alaska play basketball because there's no road system. Oh, and then they all right. fly in, and you know all these little uh, uh, pockets of yeah, yeah. You know, you have Nome, you have Barrow, you have Kotzebue. Um, you know, all public schools. But in order to go from Nome into Anchorage or it's Fairbanks, there's no roads. You have they fl- wow. all the high school teams fly around. Football teams, basketball yeah. teams, the hockey teams can. Because most of them are from Fairbanks down to the Kenai, and there's a road system down to Homer, road system down to Seward, um, you know, down on the Kenai Peninsula, and then into Anchorage, and then up to Fairbanks. So they all have hockey teams, but Nome, I think Barrel has an ice rink up there. Most of them are outdoor ice rinks. And, you know, if you get up in the interior up there, it's even colder than northern Minnesota. Really? <laughs> That's right. I mean, it's I don't 30, know how you can beat that. 30, 40 below. Oh, okay. And the wind blowing like crazy, and you yeah. just can't. I mean, a few days yeah. you can go probably skate out there, you know, I mean, right. have fun and stuff. But, uh, you know, on a regular basis, it would be it's just too much. So, um, yeah, it's uh, – so anyway, we went up there and did – the hockey schools uh, from started in 2005, and we did them through 2010. And I really liked the area, and I met some really good people up there. So I decided to move up there in 2007. And I was up there seven years. I moved back in 2014. And uh, the last, from 2012, I thought, you know, I was, I was working for the government in, sales and uh, manufacturing uh, program. I did have my real estate license up there as well, but um, it was uh, it was really a, a, a life-changing move because, man, that's a long way up there. It's like you're in a different country. <laughs> Everybody spoke English, and there were people there from all over the world, Eastern Europe, Europe, you know, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Korea, uh, the Philippines, was it the, Russians, the, I mean, yeah. Pakistan. I mean, there was just, you go into a restaurant, I think yeah. there was just about a hundred different, um, you know, different nationalities in the Anchorage School District. Really? Oh. Anchorage is about 300,000 people. Okay. So it was really um, a diverse and mixed community. It was. Have you gone back to Alaska since you left? I have. Okay. Um, but you know, I don't think I'll move back up there permanently. Okay. I really like it down here, and I haven't lived in the Twin Cities area since I left here and went to Kansas City forty forty some years ago. So it was, it's good to be back here. Uh, you know, with the with the hockey ties, and it's right where I need to be to get this project completed. 
But when I decided to start Boucher Films in 2011, I uh, flew down here. We put the company together. Uh, I and my girlfriend at the time, and then we went to Winnipeg because there's Boucher. I have Boucher Films Limited Canada. We're doing 17 Native Canadian Olympians up there. Oh, not just American, also Canadian. Yeah. Okay. And I'm a dual citizen anyway, so I have a Boucher Films. I was going to ask you about there. that because with the Ojibwe um, nation, you you don't need a passport to travel to Canada, do you? No, but I have a I have a treaty card from Canada. Okay, it's I, I, I actually belong up there. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm enrolled. I'm not federally recognized down here, but I have a treaty card that, that I'm a dual citizen. I was born and raised in the United States, but yeah. I'm actually enrolled in Canada. All right. All right. Nice. So uh, that makes it easier. Um, there is a lot of money in the provinces, provinces up there to do film work. And but I wanted to start down here, but anyway, getting back to this project and this project from 1992 until I actually started it was like, what? That's ten. You know, that's ten, fifteen years. It's been years on the back of my mind. You're right, and it's it, now it's at the stage. But I was, yeah. you know, when I was in Warwick, I wanted to do it then. I talked to different people around the state. Oh, it's a great project. You should really do it. But nobody really wanted to take on the responsibility or had the passion to to get it done. So while I was working up in Alaska, I came down here, put the LLC together. And then I went to Canada to put Boucher films together, and then um, I thought, well, I'm going. I need a I need a starting point. Okay. So I said I'm going to do my story first, and I sat down at a computer up there, and it was like sitting on a mountaintop because you can look back and you can see your whole life, <laughs> kind of you know. Okay. Yeah. This is what we used to do and. It's not like I was sitting up there in a cabin on a mountaintop, you know, looking out over this vast wilderness. I was in Anchorage, <laughs> sitting in my room <laughs> with my computer looking out the window. Yeah. But, um, and then I had done so much research with the Indian Education Department. I wrote articles. Yeah. I did this, did that. Um, so it was, um, I had all of that knowledge and for some reason it just all came together. I, uh, well, I, I, I asked because I, I, I asked cause you, it's so articulate. I don't know how you can recall so much vivid details that you use, like, or just went, did you go like an outline or you just poured it out? I poured it out. It was okay. all, the whole thing was in my head. Wow. So I sat down at a computer and I sat there and I worked on it for, it, I wrote the whole thing in two and a half months. Just, you know, and then I would stop and I would go back and research and pull papers out of, out, out of chunks. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, this is what it did. And, you know, and then we, we moved the chapters around a little bit and then they made some phone calls and, do you remember this and do you remember that? And, when I first started, I was just mm. going to do a story on just yeah. me and the Olympics. Okay. But right. I thought every time I started, it, it didn't feel right. 
and you know, then, and he had a, he thought he could maybe had to. So then uh, I was laying in bed after a couple of weeks, yeah. and after I deleted all that other crap out of it and started over, stomped around there, and and it all of a sudden just all came into view. It, okay. Um, I said I'm going to do a I might as well do a book. Nice. And I yeah. thought, where do I start? I said. You know, and I thought, well, maybe I'll start at the beginning. <laughs> so I started with the philosophy or the spirituality of the Ojibwe. Yes, yep, yep. And then I went into the migration, how we migrated over a 500-year period into this area. I thought that was, when I started reading it, I thought that was fascinating because I thought, oh, I'm just going to get a buyer for one person. But you actually started with your whole... Well, Ojibwe. I wanted, you know, yeah. and I, I, you know, as I started with that and then I thought I gotta tell my mother's my mother's arm you know like her arm and that'd be the Ojibwe moving into Lake of the Woods area and then my dad who is a Boucher from Quebec he moved down as a 15 year old to Detroit uh, my great great grandpa and then he was on ship and he went up to Mackinac Island, okay, where he met my great great grandmother as a fifteen year old, and then he just jumped ship there and started working at the Biddle House on Mackinac Island because my great grandmother was there. And when she got old enough, they married and moved to the UP. It used to be called Boucherville. Up, it's called Nobinway, Michigan now. It used to be called Boucherville, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So from there, that's where we all started. And they they had sixteen kids, eight boys and eight girls. <laughs> and uh, yeah. so then my my it'd be my great grandfather William Henry, and lost his lost two wives while he was living there. And he they were all boat builders, commercial fishermen. Okay. They would haul or catch all the way into Chicago from up there, down right down Lake Michigan. And, um, you know, they had steamships in those days, our, you know, yeah. 1890s, 1880s. So there were some people from Lake of the Woods or Kenora that went down to uh, that area, and they were opening up Lake of the Woods for commercial fishing yep. and timbering. So... They talked to my great-great-grandfather and talked him into coming up and taking a look. And the railroad in the 1890s had reached as far as Kenora, or Lake of the Woods. So he took a train probably from Sault Ste. Marie, okay. Ontario, up to Kenora, loved the area, and he ended up staying up there. And that's where my dad was born. There is a community up there called French Portage, and that's where there were 23 of my family members that still had there. families. It's still yeah. there, but okay. none of my family lives there anymore. It's all tourists now. Okay, But that's where they all lived. They had a church, and they had a school, and uh, and they ran big fishing operations out of there to haul all the fish to Kenora. You still do your fishing? I, uh, I, uh, I fish every time I go to Kenora. Okay. So anyway, then my mom and dad got married in 1932 out of one of the fish camps, Painter Rock Narrows, and uh, you know, and that's how I started. 
you know, how they got together and then how they ended up moving. My dad was the only one that moved to Warroad out of his siblings, out of nine uh, in the United States. So all the other relatives were up in Kenora, Canada and Ontario. So, you know, that was, uh, you know, and then I thought, well, I'll go into my family then and the tragedies and stuff. And then I just didn't want to make it a hockey book. So it was... Uh, there is a, it's a good hockey book. It, you know, you know, it, uh, there's a lot of information in there. Um, but I wanted to write it like I told you how I wanted the stories to go in the right. documentary. That's what's so refreshing. It's like, it's not structured. It's structured how you wanted to do it. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. and you know, I've tried so hard to hold on to that and I've had offers, Adam Beach, um, uh, people wanted to buy my book before it was even printed. Adam Beach is an Indian actor from Manitoba. And then I had Stanley Hubbard from Hubbard Broadcasting uh, that wanted to do the first documentary, but we couldn't come to terms. And we're still, we're still friends. I've known Stanley Hubbard since I was 18, I used to work there when I played with the national team. He's still busy, isn't he? He's 86 years old, and he's going 100 miles an hour. And he loves to work. I, I he think so. He loves to work. I think he, he just, just loves to work, right? Yeah. Yeah. So he's helped me quite a bit, and you know, we remain good friends. And and um, we'll just have to see where this goes. I'm, I know it's going to get made. I have the passion. I know all of these will get made. Because I think we did, we owe it to the kids, you know, for the motivational purposes that they might need. I think we owe it to the Indian people uh, to make them proud of these individuals. And I think it's a fascinating family-type story. We don't have to swear. No. We don't have to get crazy even some of these tv shows are absolutely ridiculous um that are that are showing now currently and uh, it's just good clean uh i guess a disney type um uh, information that we can uh be proud of and help motivate us through our daily lives and lives of our children but I'd like to, at some point, you know, down the road after they're all out, to put them on a CD and have the whole collection and, uh, you know, have the schools buy those collections. Like use it for history class. History class. And, oh, yeah. and uh, uh, maybe we, you know, at some point might have to put them on six discs rather than one disc each. But... Certainly, or do it by the decades or something like that. Uh, but you think education-wise, I think you have an, you obviously have enough material for something of that duration, right? You oh, know, absolutely. Yeah, you, like, you know, and there's probably I don't know um, three hundred million indigenous people in the world right now from all countries. That's amazing. So, you know, you can do it in different languages as well. Um, we, gotta, we have 
my budget here. But um, well, I would have to say, Henry, thank you for coming out. I learned a great deal that I didn't think I was going to learn today. About the well, good. I'm glad. <laughs> it's, it's good to sit down and visit. Yeah, it's nice. I, that you, I, how, how often do you get back to St. Paul or South St. Paul? How often do you get, get down here? You, well, I, I, I'm all over the place. Okay. All you right. know, I'll go back. I'm going to Stillwater next, and then uh, I'll be here for a couple more days. I'm heading back up to Warroad, my grandson's birthday, and... I'm going to hit Lake of the Woods to do some fishing. So that was going to my next question. Yeah, I actually uh, I, travel yeah, up to Warwick quite a bit still. Quite right? a bit, yeah. yeah. I like it better in the summertime rather than the <laughs> winter, of course. <laughs> At my age, you know, you want to move south. And right. you know, that's why everybody asked me when I m went to Alaska, why the hell are you moving to Alaska? You know, at your age, you should be moving south. Tell south, going and growing coconuts. Um, with the movie podcast, and I always ask my guests, it's the, my last question is, what is your favorite movie? My favorite movie is um, The Last Time I Saw Paris. The Last Time I Saw Paris. I don't think I know that. What, what is it? Do you remember? Well, it's Van Johnson. Oh, yes. And okay. uh, Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> do, you have a co do you own a copy of it? I, uh, like a VX? I do. Okay. Um, it's just a good love story. It's a good... Uh, you know, it's uh, it's about the ending of World War Two and and uh, you know meeting in Paris and it's just a good good movie. There's there's many. I yeah. you know I'm a I'm a movie buff too. I uh, I like I tend to like the older ones better. Sure. Um, you know I. I I would rather watch the older movies. There's some great movies that are come that you know that came out uh, recently, but uh, I, uh, you know, I, I like to look at the old ones. I like to look at the direction. I like to look at you know the cinematography, the the camera angles, you know how they do things. You know, now you can do everything on a computer. Now, with, oh with yeah, with a green screen. Now so. there's a movie that came out just filmed entirely on an iPhone. It was a big budget movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's always different ways. So it's amazing. I know it is. It is. You got to film right here in your phone, in your hand. You can make a movie right there. Exactly. Yeah. So. Henry Bouchet, thank you for coming. It was a real treat to have you here. Well, good. Thank you, good, Nick. Thank I appreciate you. it, and I'm looking forward to uh, yeah. listening to this. Maybe on my way up to Warroad one day. Maybe, yeah. Soon. And we definitely have to, once we get everything, the whole movie done, you definitely come back, and we have to talk about the whole the whole movie experience once you get it oh, all. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Be happy to. Thank you. All right.